0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to another edition of our Monday morning live devotional, now being broadcast wherever you find your podcasts in high definition. So we are so glad that you are here with us today. Um, I do want to, this week, we're we we're starting to, to schedule the interviews for um, a new kind of series we're going to do on the podcast channel, which is um, My working title right now, if you have a better one, I'd love to hear it. It's just called Discipleship is for Dummies. Um, And we got some people lined up that are in our church, used to be at our church, working other places that are are friends of the church, um, that kind of give us an insider look on on what does it look like uh, to live a lifestyle of discipleship, a culture of discipleship? Um, Because I think oftentimes we think too concretely um, and too... uh, uh, formally about discipleship. And those things are important, like going through a book study together with somebody doing a deep Bible study on the book of Romans. Those are good. But what does it actually look like to have a culture of discipleship, um, in your life? Cause I think it's simpler than we make it out to be. And so we're gonna have a series of interviews coming out. Um, hopefully I'll start recording some of the first ones of those this week. And then, um, when we get a couple of those loaded up, we'll start releasing them and those will be on the Sovereign Hope Church podcast channel um, for you to hear as well. You can find that on iTunes, um, or Google podcasts, or I think it's on Spotify. Spotify is maybe the cooler, trendier place to be. Um, so you can find it there, but we are continuing to cruise through the F260 Bible reading plan. Hopefully you've enjoyed this as well. Actually missed a couple days last week. We had a friend in town, um, and he got up earlier than me. And so, uh, he stole my Bible reading time, but it was a great discussion to have with a brother in Christ, um, about his life and, and what's going on there. But uh, we are in John 11 and Matthew 21 today, and so we're looking at the story of Lazarus in John 11, and then in Matthew 21, there's the story of Jesus' um, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, kind of beginning the last saga of Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. But for the sake of discussion today, uh, we're going to focus on John 11. There's a lot going on in John 11, and so that's where we are going to kind of camp out. So I'm going to give a summary of what we see in john chapter 11 and this is probably uh, one of the bible stories that you maybe have heard um it's the raising of lazarus from the dead and it begins in chapter 11 and there a certain man was ill and one thing we learn is it's no just a certain man this man is a friend of jesus and um, we have met at various times in the gospel accounts mary and martha two sisters and lazarus is their brother And so Mary uh, sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, he who you love is ill. And then Jesus says, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. And then what we see is Jesus actually, so Mary and Martha send um, word to Jesus who is not where they are. Um, They are down south of where Jesus presently is and Jesus is up north. Um, across the Jordan. And so what happens is he actually stays away from Mary and Martha and Lazarus uh, for another two days. And then at the end of the two days, uh, he says, hey, let's go back down to Judea again, to his disciples. And his disciples know that at this point, Jesus is kind of the rebel rouser in this area. And there are people who are frustrated with the claims of Jesus being a Messiah. Um, from the religious community, there's uh, the secular government officials who are watching kind of cautiously about this man who's claiming to be king, thinking he might be a political threat. And so I say, Rabbi, if we go south, people are going to stone you um, because that's where you're more well-known and there's a greater level of hostility. And then Jesus says, if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. But if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of his world. Which I love Jesus' answers to his disciples because it really makes them think. He doesn't give easy answers. Jesus is always causing us to think deeply. Um, he's not telling us uh, what to think. He's actually shaping how we think. Um, and that's one of the great things about following Jesus is, a bummer is there's no easy answers. Um, there's no simple Uh, overly reduced packets of knowledge, but the truth is Jesus wants us to think differently because of who he is. And so what happens is he tells his disciples that Lazarus has fallen asleep and he's going to go wake him up. The disciples are confused because they say, well, if he's asleep, he'll he'll probably be able to wake up on his own. Um, But Jesus says, no, 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 you don't understand. Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. And then Thomas says something important um, that we'll see and come back to in a little bit. Thomas says, well, I guess we'll go with him. So we might also die with him, speaking of Jesus. And so he came, he he comes back to Bethany, which is where Lazarus and his family are. And when he was about two miles off from the place where they were, Martha, one of his sisters, runs out to Jesus. uh, And she comes and she says, Lord, this is verse 21. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know whatever you ask. From God God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And then there's this discussion that we'll come back to on, on the resurrection and the life. And Martha says at the end, yes, Lord, I believe you are the Christ, the son of God who's coming into the world. And then when she had said this, um, she went to her sister Mary in private. So Mary's back home grieving in her house. And she says, Jesus is coming. And so Jesus comes closer And Mary rises up and runs out. This is verse 31. And now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews that had come with her also weeping. And he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 um, in English, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, "Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying?" And then Jesus goes to the grave. He's being led to where Lazarus is um, buried, a tomb, and it was a cave, and there was a stone over it. And Jesus says, "Take away the stone." And there's this famous line in the King James version where uh, Martha says, "Jesus, he's in been in there for four days. It stinketh." Uh, In other words, there's this decomposing body in there, and it's not going to be a good smell if we open this tomb, which shows that Mary and Martha um, believed that Lazarus was dead and was going to stay dead for what we'll see when. We'll see their understanding of the resurrection in a moment. Uh, And then Jesus says, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? And so I took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes. He said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. And when he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out and his hands and feet were bound with linen straps and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. And then we see at the end um, in verses 45 through the end of the chapter that this moment, just like everything else in the gospels, has a really polarizing effect on those who are following Jesus. Some believed some disbelieved. And this again goes to show that our greatest problem is not what we see. Our greatest problem is what we believe. Um, And so what we see here is the Sanhedrin. That's the religious court assembles. And they're like, this Jesus is a real problem. Um, If he continues to grow, and so they perceive this political threat, uh, the Roman government had given uh, the Jewish religious functions a sort of liberty as long as they towed the line. And so if Jesus goes around claiming to be king, the Pharisees, and the, the court is worried that they're going to have their liberties restricted because the government is no longer going to see uh, Judaism as just a peaceful, coexistent sect of religion. Instead, they're going to see them as an insurrectionist movement. And so they begin talking about Jesus in this way. Caiaphas, um, the high priest, starts talking about this way and actually foreshadows what will come. He says, well, this could be good news for us because if the Roman government comes and they see Jesus speaking these words seemingly revolutionary rhetorics, um, they'll put him to death. And he says, this is actually for our good, because if one man dies for the nation, this will be good. And what he's saying um, is he's not knowingly predicting the resurrection, and yet he is predicting the resurrection. He's basically saying, uh, yeah, Jesus is talking all this revolutionary nonsense about freedom and a kingdom and being a king and all of that. But if the Roman government comes and they kill him, it's going to be good for the Jews, because they're going to see that they shouldn't keep looking for a Messiah like this. Um, When the king comes, the king that we want, he's going to be strong enough, powerful enough to set up the kingdom we want. He will be a military threat to Rome that Rome cannot resist. And this petty carpenter is not that king. So it'll be good if the Romans kill him because it'll keep the Jews in line. They will fear being treated like Jesus. And here it is, this foreshadowing where he says this. um, uh, He said, he did not say this by his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And so he's not—he's not speaking in terms of propitiation, dying for the sins of the nation, dying for the for to unite the nation under uh, a no-nonsense policy, uh, and not only for the nation also, but to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Therefore, Jesus's ministry begins to become kind of clandestine. Um, there's too much popularity around him. And so he kind of sneaks around in the shadows so that his plan to get to the cross is not um, uh, complicated uh, or uh, taken out of his hands, even though it's in God's hands. But Jesus is being wise with the, the, the responsibility that God has given him. And then we see it ends... With the Passover and the Pharisees and chief priests say, if you see Jesus, he's our most wanted. Let us know so that we can arrest him. That's John chapter 11, uh, Matthew chapter 21. We read the first 13 verses. Uh, We see Jesus riding into Jerusalem, being proclaimed the Messiah, people laying down their cloaks. um, And the whole town of Jerusalem kind of being in this fervor that Jesus, the prophet, had finally come to roost in Jerusalem. So that's the summary um, that we see in John chapter 11. Hopefully you had time to read that today. Um, if not, hopefully this discussion is helpful for when you do sit down and read it. Uh, I would hope that uh, your uh, day uh, is not merely sitting down and listening to this and not reading God's word. If you have a choice, read God's word and ignore me. But if this is helpful in reading God's word, then uh, great. So we do three things with the text um, Three things that are simple. Um, It's not an exhaustive Bible study, but it's a helpful way to help us organize our thoughts during the day. And so we want to look up. What does this passage show us about God? We look in. What does this passage teach us about ourselves? And lastly, we look out. How does this passage change the way we live as church members, Christians, husbands, wives, friends, all of that good stuff. So um, we've got two things in looking up, and that's probably where we're going to spend most of our time today. And the first thing we see is Jesus's love for his friends. I think this is really interesting. So look with me at verses three through five, where John says this. So the sisters sent to Jesus saying, the Lord, he whom you love is ill. Speaking of Lazarus. And so Jesus loves Lazarus. And when Jesus heard this, he says, here's a little aside, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of man may be glorified it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We also see this in verse 36, um, where the crowd said, Some, So the Jews said, See how he loved him. That's Jesus weeping after he sees that Lazarus uh, is dead. And there's this uh, really, I think we tend to have polarizing views on the emotional life of Jesus. I like think some of us think of him as just being this, uh, stoic, emotionless figure on one hand and the other one, uh, being this, sorry, if you hear that, it sounds like my children are pulling each other's teeth in the other room. Um, uh, either seeing Jesus as this stoic, emotionless figure, or Jesus as just this soppy, wet, emotional mess. Um, and, uh, there's, there's kind of a, a, a neat thing you, you'll sometimes hear of. It's called cat and dog theology. Some people see Jesus as this dog, you know, slobbering, just waiting for you to come home. And other people see him as this prudish kind of uptight cat that you need to kind of dance around and please because uh, he, he doesn't exhibit a lot of affable things. But here we see this wonderful tension because we do see Jesus throughout the gospels being very upset, very angry um, at the religious hypocrites of the day. But we also see that Jesus is loving towards his friends with a real sort of love. Um, Because we have this wonderful tension through this whole text that Jesus knows everything about what's going on. He's already told Mary and Martha that this illness will not lead to death. And there's a nuance there we'll talk about in a second because Lazarus does die. Um, We know that when he is um, up north, that before anyone else knows it, before anyone else has told him, Jesus knows that Lazarus has gone from being sick to being dead. And that kind of confuses the disciples because they think he's just asleep or he's still sick and he'll recover. Um, And yet, despite what Jesus knows, Jesus is very emotionally involved in everything that's going on. Um, He is comforting Martha. He is weeping with Mary. And uh, actually, it's really interesting. Uh, Tim Keller, who's a pastor in uh, Manhattan, preached a sermon the Sunday after 9-11 on this text. And his text wasn't so much about the resurrection of Lazarus, but his text was about Jesus's response to both Mary and to Martha. Um, Because here's this Jesus who knows all the things. And when Martha comes to him, uh, Jesus engages her in her dialogue. She wants to talk about what's going on. She wants to understand it and process it theologically. And She says, if you were here, um, this wouldn't have happened, but I know whatever you ask, it'll be good. And they begin kind of what seems like this rational dialogue over what's going on. And there are some of us when we encounter um, things where we want to, uh, we're going through Second Peter right now and I say, Peter is assuming two groups of people, the thinkers and the, feel- the, the knowers and the feelers. And here Martha is a knower and she engages her at her level and begins a dialogue that builds towards faith. Uh, And then we see Jesus with Mary, and Jesus comes to Mary, and he doesn't do the same things he did with Martha. Instead, Mary comes and Jesus grieves with her. Jesus weeps with her. And it made uh, made me think of, this is kind of the point Keller makes, but he doesn't uh, use this scripture specifically, Um, but Psalm 103, where Jesus says this in verses uh, 13 and 14. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Uh, And then verse 14 says, uh, for he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. So here we have such a friend in Jesus who knows us. Um, He knows you intimately. He knows me intimately. And um, there are times where I try to parent just my four children with a cookie cutter mentality of what parenting looks like but I realize that each of my kids responds differently and I don't fully know what works to care for them. But Jesus as our true friend and God as our heavenly father knows exactly what our hearts need in the moment. And he has promised to draw near to us, but that drawing near is not easy because remember their brother is dead. There's real grief here. And yet we see in this Jesus' immense love that when we look at ourselves, we can trust that that love continues to us, that we are Friends of Jesus as well, though not in a physical timeline like Mary, Lazarus, Lazarus, and Martha. And so Jesus has great love for his friends, and we should take great hope in that, um, that if we are a friend of God through faith, all of that love is for us. Um, He wants to come, and he wants to come with the knowledge of the one who created you and comfort you where you are weak. That's the first thing we see is Jesus' love for his friends. Next, we see that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And so here in engaging with this kind of theological um, dialogue with Martha, who's trying to formulate it in her systematic understanding of what's going on in life. um, Jesus says this. Uh, Jesus says to her, that's to Martha, this is verse 23, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And here's where we need to understand a bit um, the Jewish understanding of the resurrection because the Jews did believe in a resurrection from the dead, but it was going to be a one-time event that at one point in history, all of those who would die would rise again. And so Martha is believing um, kind of this eschatological, meaning this future-oriented hope that yes, Jesus, I understand that one day Lazarus will rise from the dead. Um, but what Jesus is doing is now he begins to turn this on his head because he's beginning to show the nature and the source of what that resurrection is. That resurrection is not just an, some historic point in time, though it will have a historic point in time. That resurrection is tied to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And so here we begin to see this Christocentric this Jesus centered understanding of the whole scope of the world because the end hope for these Jews was this resurrection from the dead and now we see that that is tied to this man this Messiah the resurrection is not of the dead is not unconnected from the work of the Messiah who is himself the resurrection and the life what Jesus is showing is that the whole scope of life the beginning and the end comes down to what you believe about Jesus because he himself has this immense power. He himself is the one who grants resurrection life because he himself is going to be the one who is resurrected ultimately. And actually what we see in Romans chapter chapter 6, um, there, there is uh, only one spot in scripture where God's glory does something. And that is in Romans chapter six, where it says that Jesus was raised by the glory of God. In other places, we see the glory, people can experience the glory, but the only time glory does something is by raising Jesus from the dead. And in that act, that is what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, the first fruits that Christ has risen from the dead as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. And so what Jesus is showing here with Lazarus is the nature of the resurrection that Jesus himself would have that we also will have because of Jesus, not simply because God you know, will someday resurrect us, but because of what Jesus has done and his power to take away our sins and grant us life. And one thing we see here is, is we need to make sure we have um, an actual hope in the resurrection from the dead. Do we actually understand that? And if we understand that, that doesn't lead us to vast speculation of when this will be and counting the newspaper headlines of what's going wrong with the world. It leads us back to Jesus. Do you believe this? That I am the resurrection and the life. That whoever believes in me shall die, but they will also live. And so we see this Christocentric understanding that Jesus is bringing into Mary's life. And the next thing we see is, is something that I love. Um, because Jesus uh, says this in verses 41 through 43. So they took away the stone, so they're at the tomb, and Jesus Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. So pay attention to what he's saying. I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And I love this window into the relationship with God, the father, because here we see this inner working of the Trinity again. But we see that Jesus is basically saying, God, you hear me. You've always heard me. I could whisper in my secretest heart, Lazarus come out and he would come out. But what he does is he says, I'm about to yell. I'm about to yell loudly. But it's for the sake of those who are around me. And so there's this wonderful thing where we, we kind of imagine, you know, Jesus yelling boldly like it's the, the strength of his words that's going to roust Lazarus from the dead. But Jesus did not need to yell. He yelled for us. He yelled not so that Lazarus would hear and come out, but that we would hear and believe. That's why he's doing all of this, is to see that he is the one who holds the hope for our life. Jesus is the hope for dead men in a grave, that we would hear him now and believe. And this leads to this wonderful confession by Mary, where she says, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and we, not the guy in the tomb, we who are here, the participants in the story in our spiritual tombs are the ones who need to hear Jesus's power, and we need to see it actually in a greater resurrection than Lazarus, and we'll come back to that in a moment. So that was longer, two shorter ones. Um, First, looking in, we, we only have one. Uh, Thing. And I think this is important because of the way in which we understand Jesus' friendship and the way in which we understand Jesus' love in this story. Is when we look in at our hearts, we learn here that we don't get to decide what love is. We don't get to, we we have this human understanding of love that is shaped by your background with your parents, with your siblings, the the cultural era you live in. Um, But God created love. God existed in triune perfection uh, before we were created, and in that was love. And so any true love must look first at what that looked like in the Trinity, uh, not where we do here. And so we often start with a bottoms up view of love, where we say, this is how I've encountered love from my girlfriend or from my wife. Therefore, this is how God should love me. But God says, this is how I have existed in love. Therefore, this is how I will love you. And so we need to make sure that we're understanding love from the right source and not from the bottom up. And this is important because, look at this wonderful tension that comes um, Verse five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. (laughs) And so here's this almost funny thing that John is doing, but he's doing it for a purpose. Jesus loves Lazarus so much, so much so that when he found out he was ill, he did nothing to help him. That's really what's going on. And we see that because the Jews picked this up in verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have also kept this man from dying? And This is where we see the nature of Jesus's love for us. Because it might be that Jesus loves us in a way that is greater than removing superficial suffering. And I say that in a unique way. Because this superficial suffering was death itself. That's a pretty terminal form of suffering in this world. And yet Jesus is after something greater for his people than simply the removal of suffering. right? Jesus said this in verse 3, that this illness does not lead to death, but it did. But we don't know the rest of the story. That it did lead to death, but it did not end with death. Why? It is for the glory of God that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And there are oftentimes in our own lives where um, we want to cry out to God and say, if you love me, this is what your love looks like. And we become disheartened when that love doesn't match uh, what we expect it to. But here we see that Jesus was more loving than we could ever imagine in this text. And yet he included four days in a grave. He included two grieving sisters and a collection of grieving Jews and a bunch of confused disciples. But that trough, that valley was not disconnected from Jesus's love because he loved so that it might lead them to belief. And that's the ultimate thing. If Jesus really loves us, he's going to lead us to belief. If Jesus really loves us, he's going to reveal to us more of who he is. And that sometimes includes realizing times where Jesus has to be everything that we're not. It comes in stripping away places where we can trust in the false comforts of life and realize that we must trust only and always in Jesus fully. And so in our lives, let us not be one who tries to tell God what his love should look like. But let's look at this story and ultimately let's look at the cross of Jesus wherein he shows his love, not by raising someone from the dead, but by dying himself for those who were dead. And let's trust that when Jesus loves us, that it's not some silly sort of passive, powerless love, but that it's true love. And that sometimes we don't know what's going on, but we are not far from Christ's love, even if we find ourselves in a tomb. And so let's look now at looking at, what does this mean for us in terms of how we live? Um, One thing I love about this is the responses of the people in this text. And so we talked about this tension of Jesus knowing everything, but just also not sharing everything. And so what what does it mean when it says to look out, or when we begin to look at looking out, Um, I think it it shows how we live with our limitations aside of an unlimited Jesus. How do we live with our limitations when we are following an unlimited Jesus? And that leads to these awkward moments of tension. And because there's a, a wonderful sense of uncertainty here in this text, but there's an uncertainty with hope. We see people who kind of in any other context would be expressing a sort of doubt, But that doubt is redeemed because even though they doubt, what they're doing with their doubt is the same. They're taking their doubt to Jesus. And look at how both Mary and Martha say this. They say this in a similar way. Martha says this in verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And so Mary says, I don't know what's going on. I trust whatever happens happens, but I know if you were here, he wouldn't have died. And so there's this sense of doubt, like, why weren't you here? But then there's this also sense of belief, like, but you could do whatever you want to do. And then we get to Martha, and Martha says something similar. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then she wept. And the Jews who had come began weeping also, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he wept. And so here we see Mary again saying, Lord, if you had been here, and yet she ran to him she 's not up she understands that Jesus held the life of her brother in her hand, and yet she is not frustrated with him in anger instead she is coming with all of her brokenness to Jesus and that is the best we can do sometimes it 's not that following Jesus will never leave us brokenhearted it 's not that following Jesus will never leave us wounded it 's not that following Jesus will never uh, leave us um, unconfused. Am I, am I saying that right? But what it means is that we get to go to Jesus with all of those emotions and trust that he is still the the only one who could actually handle the sum of them. And we go to Jesus with our uncertainty. We go to Jesus with our fears and we learn to live in that tension. And I love this most clearly when we see Thomas um, here called the twin, because in verse six, it says that, um, Jesus said, or verse seven, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you're going there again. And Jesus has this dialogue and it's followed up um, with, uh, Jesus says this in verse 14, Lazarus has died and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. See, this is the, the unique nature of Jesus is he's glad his friend has died. Why? Because Jesus is in complete control. But what is he going to do? So that you may believe. Jesus is working for something greater in your life than you could ever imagine. And that something greater is an increased faith. And then I love what it says here. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, he's turning and he's, he's, he's now beginning to disciple disciples, which is what God calls us to do. And I love this because we see the imperfect nature of discipleship. He says this, let's also go that we may die with him. <laughs> and so Thomas sees this, he says, okay, the Jews want to kill Jesus and they will probably stone him. We've told Jesus that if he goes south, he's probably going to die. I don't see any way around this, but I'm willing to die with Jesus. Like Thomas doesn't have the wherewithal to think that Jesus actually has the sovereign control to only yield himself to the cross when the moment has come. That God is in control of all of this. Jesus is not going to get hit by a stray stone and the plan of redemption is going to be foiled. Uh, Thomas doesn't know that. He knows that Jesus might be stoned. He knows that he might be stoned with Jesus. And he says, it's worth dying for. If this is where it leads me, I'm okay with it. And, and what a great place to be in. That we might see that we don't know the exact outcome of what's going on. But that we might say with Thomas, at least we'll die with him. And we have this wonderful hope in these moments of tension. We don't know what's going on. That we can commit to following Jesus with the same uh, uh, commitment as Thomas but we actually have a better hope of Thomas. Why? Because Thomas saw Lazarus resurrected and he's also going to see perhaps in his lifetime, Lazarus die again. But Thomas, this Thomas is also going to see and actually doubt Jesus himself when he's resurrected. And because we have seen the resurrected Jesus, we have a greater hope that though we might die with Christ, I hope that we die with Christ we'll also be raised with Christ. That we know that whatever we encounter in this life is nothing compared to the resurrection life we now share with him. And so in these moments where we don't fully understand what's going on, what we do know is that we can continue to follow Christ into what we don't know. We can continue to follow Christ with all of our weaknesses, with all of our fears, with all of our insecurities. And because we have seen someone greater resurrected than Lazarus, we have actually seen that this isn't just true for Lazarus. Through Christ, this is true for me. That if I believe in Jesus, that he takes the wages of my sin and gives me his life, that I might die in this world. You probably will die, save the Lord's coming back. But we will live with Christ. And that means that we could follow him anywhere. We could follow him into the stone-throwing clutches of the Sanhedrin. And we can know that we're exactly where we want to be because we are with the one who loves us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much um, for your word. I can only imagine um, the emotions of the people who saw all of this happening, the confusion, but also the clarity, the sorrow, but also the joy. And so Lord, I pray that you give us eyes to see your resurrection from the dead and its implications in our life. I pray that whatever happens in our life, it might be for your glory in that we have a greater confidence of our belief in Jesus, the Messiah, the one sent from God into the world. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.